specialization is for insects, right? As a human being, you know, you have the gift of being able to really do whatever you want and to live a rich, fulfilling life. You want to be able to expand your wings and, and really see what's out there and, you know, experience life for, for what it is. This week, we are brought to you by Attest. Attest is a consumer research platform that enables brands to make customer understanding a competitive advantage with continuous insights. By combining unparalleled speed and data quality with on-demand research guidance, the platform makes it simple and fast to uncover opportunities with consumer data and grow without guesswork. Hello and welcome to the Shiny New Object Podcast. My name is Tom Ollerton. I'm the founder of Automated Creative. And this is a weekly podcast where I get to speak to cool, smart marketing people from around the industry, from around the world, about their vision, what they think is going to happen next, and where we think the industry is going. I'm on a call with Narsing Dixit, who is Digital Growth Marketing Manager at Unilever. So Narsing, for anyone who doesn't know who you are and what you do, can you give them a bit of a background? First of all, th- thanks again for having me on podcast. I'm a big fan of it myself. And I think you've done a, a wonderful job of curating a, a really cool uh, you know, selection of guests. So hopefully I can leave something meaningful behind for your audience today. Um, in, in terms of what I'm currently doing, so uh, you know, digital growth at Unilever. Uh, I've also recently started teaching um, at uh, BrainStation where I teach digital marketing um, to you know, uh, young you know, professionals are also experienced professionals that are looking to learn a little bit more about the space. Um, and I think I've been really lucky uh, in, in my career so far to kind of have the opportunity to work across multiple industries spanning big tech, healthcare, real estate, along with a stint in the agency world. And while my roles have primarily been within marketing, I've kind of gone out of my way to learn a bit more about sales, IT, product, and, and, and operations as well. So a lot of, a lot of different uh, you know, verticals and a lot of different work sizes r- really allowed me to get a more holistic sense of you know, running a business, understanding different need states and problems and, and, and thriving regardless of the situation. So you mentioned some more thing, I think real estate, you mentioned that yes. that's definitely our first guest who's mentioned real estate in 200 episodes. So that I'm, it's kind of interesting to know a bit more about that, but sales, IT products and ops and agency experience as well. I mean, that's pretty broad. So I'm kind of curious to yeah. know what new belief or behavior have you taken on in the last five years that's really helped you with your work life? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, that, that's a good question. You know, um, uh, for me, what I realized through this process um, was, um, this idea of, you know, forcing myself to be in an uncomfortable uh, position. And the more I kind of learned about it, you know, having a little bit of a psychology background uh, through my, through my university time, um, I, I did a little bit of research and, and discovered the idea of, of growth mindset, um, which has become popularized over, over the last, you know, five to seven years now. Um, and I, I guess maybe I want to backtrack a little bit and, and talk about what, you know, a growth mindset isn't. Um, and, and, you know, there's a misconception that, um, you know, people are, are born with it and, you know, it's just something they've always had. Um, and, and that's really not the case. You know, uh, everyone has the capability to, to work with a growth or a fixed mindset. And the second thing is, you know, um, the growth mindset is, is usually thought about as rewarding and praising effort. I think there's also sort of a territory you can enter there where um, it starts to become limiting in and of itself, where, you start to believe, for example, you know, if you, if you tend to reward people 
for being intelligent, uh, they might seem to think that they're intelligent and that by itself becomes a fixed mindset. So I, I think, you know, to me kind of, experiencing different different areas different business types was all uh kind of related to my my goal of uh seeing if i could put myself in positions and still be able to thrive and yield results and so real estate as as you pointed out uh was a little bit of, of, of a left field um, industry to get into. But I think the beauty of it was because the real estate industry is relatively traditional, um, it allowed me to introduce, uh, you know, and, uh, digital marketing concepts um, and really mature, at, at least the company that, that I was a part of, really mature the digital function, uh, you know, from something that was really paid media oriented, uh, right, uh, to becoming a full-fledged overall holistic strategy. So the growth mindset is popular, but what I found myself thinking when we, we were chatting just then is I would never say that to someone socially. Like if I met someone at a party or mm. a, in the pub or someone, yeah, I'm a kind of growth mindset kind of person. I, I, right. If someone said that to me, I'd be like, I've heard those words and I kind of understand mm. what it is. But what's the kind of plain English, like no BS version of, of that mindset? Yeah, you know, I, I would say it's maybe maybe to kind of shape this another way, you know, there's a quote by by Darwin um, that goes something along the lines of, you know, it's not the most intelligent or strongest that survive, but uh, it's those that are most adaptable to change. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because uh, by, by default, human beings don't like change. You know, we, we kind of like to be in a habitual, uh, you know, routine sort of an environment. But, uh, you know, to me, I think, uh, I thrive off of um, off of learning, uh, off of you know, um, uh, off of being in, in discomfort, and that's been part of the reason why I've kind of been in, in, in different industries is because you know that that, that challenge uh, eventually starts to starts to wane off, you know, depending on the projects that you're working on, and uh, you know, in simple English, I, I, I think what I would say the growth mindset is all about is is just uh, embracing change. That's a really nice way of, of putting it. So, so my next sort of provocation on, on growth mindset is that I love that idea of you know, ch- challenging, constantly being uncomfortable, not looking for the path of least resistance, moving into new roles, new uh, verticals, new, but whatever it was and all these things you've done, which is really impressive. But at some point, the description of an expert, which I really love, which is something along the lines of an expert is someone who's made all the possible mistakes there are to make in any given field. Mm-hmm. It like this. It's not really a growth mindset. It's just repetition. It's repetition with slight, slight changes. It's it's repetition with like an ever so slightly different angle on, and you just do it so many times that it, by the end of it, you just you just really good at it. Right. Um, and so, but that's kind of the opposite of the growth mindset. The growth mindset is well, change jobs, move country, like you know, get a new partner, like learn a new thing. Right. Um, and so, do you start off with the growth mindset, and then when you find your love, do you go deeper into it? Help help me understand the the tension between having a growth mindset and being open to change and actually the fact that if you want to be amazing at something, you just got to repeat it over and over again. Yeah. That, that, it's a, it's a really, really good question because it, it is about, uh, you know, finding that balance b- b- between that, that, that frictional process. And, and so to kind of, kind of paint the picture a little bit, you know, although I've had experiences in a lot of different verticals, my foundation has primarily been within the marketing world. So what, what that's allowed me to do is, whether it's B2B, whether it's B2C, I've, I've been 
improving the the ability to be able to market and you know just be be a good marketer you know fundamentally and you know as 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 you know you know b2b b2c are different types of marketing obviously the fundamentals are the same but the tactics that you use the strategy that you use the way you think the questions you ask are very different so it kind of forces you to start to understand and ask better questions along along the way and you know there's this interesting thought around around specialization that 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 I stumbled upon um I think it was earlier this year that you know specialization is for insects right as a human being you know you have the gift of being able to really do whatever you want and to live a rich fulfilling life you want to be able to expand your wings and and really see what's out there and you know experience life for for what it is so while specialization is great i think it's about you know realizing that you know you don't have to specialize in one industry you know in one domain you can start to build on top of that right so being a generalist is actually very powerful so if if you look at let's say CEOs today they usually tend to have uh, you know background in multiple different domains before they kind of take that generalist role to be able to run an entire organization right you you're not going to find you know just a a, a hyper focused specialist to be able to you know run a company you know that 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 has to solve a lot of different problems so so that's sort of how i find the balance between between the two where you you kind of you can still specialize within the broad sense of you know marketing but you can still do it you know across multiple different areas that was a very good answer to the question so we're going to move on now i, I want to know what your top marketing tip is so marketing being your core and all of this experience around it being your growth mindset but what what is the tip that you share most often with the people you work with? Yeah, I, th- I think my, my my favorite tip, and this is something that I, I learned a long time ago, was um, people don't know what they want. And it's it's something that, you know, I obviously say uh, with caution, especially as a, as a, as a data marketer, because, uh, you know, definitely please listen to your customers. Um, but, uh, you know, I think this is where the art and science of marketing really, really shines. And... I wanted to paint this picture by talking about spaghetti sauce. Um, and I, I, this is something that, you know, I, I, I had read or heard a long time ago, but, but it stuck with me. Um, and it was the reinvention of spaghetti sauce. There's a researcher, I, I think his official title is like a psychophysicist um, who, who goes by the name, uh, his name is How- Howard Moskowitz. And um, he had done some research, I think it was for Pepsi, where um, when they were releasing um uh, died Pepsi, they'd come to him uh, with uh, uh, the problem that, you know, we figured out that, you know, we have aspartame, um, the range is between um, eight to 12%, but we don't really know what the sweet spot is. So can you, you know, go out there and figure out what is the, the sweet spot that's going to sell with consumers? And um, w- when he did the research, uh, most researchers would expect some sort of a normal distribution curve where, you know, most people kind of, you know, um, congregated towards one sort of um, um, uh, a data point. But what what bothered him and what was unusual was that the data was all over the place. And, you know, this kind of plagued him for a couple of years and he was trying to figure out what went wrong. And, and what he realized was, uh, you know, they were asking the wrong question. You know, it was not what is the perfect diet Pepsi? It's, you know, what are the perfect diet Pepsis? And to kind of illustrate that picture, uh, he finally, you know, Got a, got a breakthrough opportunity with, with Campbell to really prove that, that that hypothesis. And 
this was when uh, you know Campbell ha- uh, was uh, struggling with with their Prego brand uh, spaghetti sauce, which was I think objectively better. You know, even in those blind tests that they used to do back in the day, it was better than ragu, but it was just not doing really well in, in the marketplace, and so. What Howard ended up doing was, I think he tested like 45 different versions of, of spaghetti sauce and thousands and thousands of customers came in and tasted it. And when he looked at the data, he was able to find three large clusters. Um, the first cluster was people who like plain spaghetti sauce. The second cluster was people that like spicy spaghetti sauce. But the third cluster, which was really the breakthrough, was extra chunky. And this was unheard of. Right. Um, you know, all the research that had been done on spaghetti sauce, extra chunky was not really an option that, that was even relevant. Uh, but, you know, lo and behold, um, you know, Prego went to market with extra chunky. They made, I think, six hundred million dollars in, in the next 10 years off of that off of that product um, line. And it, it you know, the key takeaway from that was, you know, it's not. You know, if you asked a consumer what they wanted, they wouldn't really tell you that they wanted extra chunky. So it's kind of you as a marketer need to do your due diligence to look at the data, understand the data, and, and also be able to derive the insights of relevance and then provide a solution that you believe is going to address that, that particular problem. And, and as a bonus takeaway for your listeners, this was also the introduction of the concept of horizontal segmentation uh, within, within product categories. So this is why we today have, you know, multiple different olive oils and multiple different vinegar options and multiple different, you know, um, ketchup variations, et cetera. Uh, this is all kind of stemmed from this one little, uh, you know, research project that, that changed the way researchers talk. It make it sound all so simple. doesn't like, <laughs> but another time we'll get into the weeds of uh, why that doesn't happen. This episode of the Shiny New Object podcast is brought to you in partnership with Madfest. Whether it's live in London or streamed online to the global marketing community, you can always expect a distinctive and daring blend of fast-paced content, startup innovation pitches, and unconventional entertainment from Madfest events. You'll find me causing trouble on stage, recording live versions of this podcast, and sharing a beer with the nicest and most influential people in marketing. Check it out at www.madfestlondon.com. We are going to talk about your shiny new object, which is personalization. So some might argue that that's very shiny and new for some brands, but entirely old school for some others. So why is personalization your shiny new objects? And why do you think it represents the future of this industry? Yeah, you know, I think what's what's really interesting about personalization is I think... Um, um, a, a few years ago, uh, I think McKinsey had come out with an article about why digital personalization at scale is the holy grail of marketing, which I stu- still do believe it, it is truly the holy grail. And um, it, it's interesting to see the evolution, right? Because it's not that personalization is a new concept, but, you know, marketers got pretty sloppy over time. And, you know, a direct consequence of that was consumers started to feel uncomfortable and, you know, it resulted, and rightfully so, in the introduction of privacy laws. And, you know, we've got GDPR and Canada, we have Castle, which are, you know, two of the most strictest laws that exist in terms of uh, data acquisition, governance, et cetera. And I, I think, although we've done a good job to get to the point where we can personalize, um, you know, communications better, advertising better, um, it, you know, we're still far away from unlocking that true, you know, 
you know, a one-to-one personalization that would that would drive impact um, at scale, right? I, I think the scale part is, is pretty important there. And, and, you know, just a personal example, you know, the pair of headphones that I'm wearing right now, I shopped for these two months ago. I'm still getting ads about headphones. It's like, I'm long gone. I'm not buying another pair of headphones, uh, you know, a, a, anytime soon. So, you know, things are still not there. Uh, in, in terms of being able to, uh, you know, manage that experience better. And if you think about personalization, I mean, the, the benefits are, are massive, right? Yeah, you, you can reduce your acquisition costs by 50%, uh, you know, uplift your revenue, increase the efficiency of marketing spend, you know, by up to 30%. So, you know, I guess for me, the way I think about it is that there are three building blocks to, you know, driving personalization better. And, and really get to that last frontier of, of personalization. And it all kind of starts with first-party data. Um, and I know this is not easily accessible, especially you know, if you're a smaller business, to be able to control the data to that extent. But you know, it truly is something that um, um, unlocks the end-to-end personalization that you would need. You know, to give you a couple of examples, 35% of Amazon sales come from uh, their, their recommended product section, right? Like, like similar products. Um, recommended products, et cetera. Um, and, and let's think of Starbucks for a second. You know, their their rewards and loyalty program drives 50% of their revenue. That's massive, right? But the the, the, the key insight here is that they have access to the, the data. They own that data. And so therefore they can enrich, learn, and you know, be able to um, control the narrative very, very cleanly. Um, and that, that kind of leads me to the second building block, which is also kind of interesting, um, is I think we're starting to see um, the dissipation of a linear consumer journey. Um, you know, obviously this has been brewing up for the last few years, but context is more relevant than a, a linear consumer journey. So it's almost as if, as a marketer, you need to start building and constructing a lot of roads, and all of these roads lead to Rome. Um, and having the ability to listen to customer signals and respond to them immediately, right? So that agility is, is, is super important, but it all revolves around context. So it's not really having the perfect customer journey, but it's being ready to respond to what your customer needs when they need it, which leads me to the last building block, which is top-down segmentation. Um, and going back to the spaghetti sauce story, it's kind of starting broad, building it to clusters. And then finally, and, and you know, this is, I, I guess, what automated creative does does really well as well is is leveraging AI and machine learning to drive the personalization, right? The human beings are just not possible to be able to, you know, personalize content to a million different people. So it's really trying to understand how you can leverage the the much better AI that we have today, um, and, and ideally do it, you know, uh, in a proprietary uh, fashion that's strictly for your company. So whether that's Unilever or any other company for that matter, if you can leverage AI for your company based on the data that you have and you own, maybe you'll be able to truly unlock that um, you know, epitome of, of, of uh, personalization. So I'm going to say something you said earlier and play it back to you. So personalization works when you show someone an ad be that through, I don't know, Starbucks, like their loyalty program or Amazon people bought who you should buy this because you someone else bought this or sorry, the other way around. But you also said earlier that people don't know what they want. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of a, I, I think there's a tension in what you're saying here that um, that brands should personalize and, and, and 
give people what they want, but you also said that earlier, people don't know what they want. So how exactly. can a how can a brand possibly guess? How can a brand make a decision tree? How can a brand create a uh, a, a structure, AI driven or other, that promotes certain things when people don't know what they want anyway? Right. Uh, yeah, that's that, that's a good good question, and I'll, I'll kind of answer this using the Amazon example, right? Um, I'm trying to trying to think of something that's it's probably relevant to. Okay, so for example, um, let's say um, you're you're doing a home office setup, right? Um, and you you know you you you've got everything kind of set up, and you know someone comes to me and they're like, yeah, you know, what else do you think would improve your home office experience? I don't know. People don't know what they want. I, I'm not sure. Amazon has access to data that all the people that, that have been setting up their home offices for some reason have recently been investing in uh, uh, a ring light, right. To improve their, you know, office experience. And, and that's, that's the data point that they have, which they can start to test, you know, with multiple consumers based on the relationship that they have there um, where, okay, so let's, let's try and, you know, promote the ring light and, if they do see that trend, that that sort of that personalization kind of marrying up to, you know, not knowing what, what you wanted by uncovering something that might be of interest, looking at the data, you know, at, at an individual and, and cluster level, right? So hopefully that kind of answers that, you know, that the tension between me not knowing what I wanted, but, you know, because Amazon had access to millions and millions of data points, they were able to recommend something of relevance. And it, it's, I, I find myself thinking about this a lot. It's kind of slightly embarrassing, but it, um, there's also a ton of uh, data that Amazon doesn't have. Like, you know, there's, there's loads of things in life there isn't any data for, right? But right. yeah, we, you know, we obsess about the things that there are. Like, so, so say, for example, someone wants to improve their home office. The thing that might have the best impact on the home office might be half an hour's more sleep, for example. <laughs> I'm just being completely right. tangential. But yeah, Amazon yeah. has no idea. I don't know, maybe Alexa kind of pumps back snore sounds or something. I don't know. But they're certainly mm-hmm. not, they're certainly not, they're not as far as we know, leveraging that data. So, uh, you know, I also had this yeah, thing I talk about a lot is that, um, you know, Facebook has, I'm oh, sorry, uh, brands have data on which ads work, but they don't have any data on what ads they were seen alongside. Yep, so, yep. so people assume that the creative is the thing that drove the outcome that they were interested in, whereas mm-hmm. actually it's the the context within the the fact that that create that creative was seen. So, the, an example would be if you've uh, if you just watch a, a Netflix documentary about uh, veganism, you're going to feel differently about a McDonald's advert if you've been in a bar and had six beers and no lunch. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, um, there isn't any data for the thing that, that you can't see. And so that's the thing with personalization for me that like, I almost don't think it's personalization. It's this recommendation, right? You know, based on that, based on a a huge data set that is still limited, we can recommend that you should try these things, but like, I don't really feel that as personalized. Personalized is someone, you know, me walking into a shop and saying, hi, Tom, how's it going? Would you like your usual, um, how, you know, how's your daughter, how's your wife, so, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, yeah. Just, I, just, I, I think that um, the advertising gives these technologies and these techniques words that like oversell their, what they actually do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, to, to that point, that's why I think it's the perfect definition. I think personalization is the holy grail. Will we ever reach it? I'm, I'm not sure. So who do you think does personalization well? Who, like who do you, experience personalization from and you're like oh that yeah that is that's amazing 
Yeah, you know, I I, I do want to say, uh, 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 like again, just going back to back to Amazon, I, I think they do a great job. And, and you, when you talked about sleep, it, it just started to make me think about, you know, when you start to expand like a Google or an Amazon, right? Obviously, this is something only bigger companies can achieve. But when you start to expand your portfolio into multiple verticals, it actually does give you access to some really interesting information, right? So let's say Amazon from a shopping perspective, might not be able to derive a lot of insights, but they also have Amazon Prime Video or they have Prime Music. And, and, and think about what you can do with that, right? Like imagine you're able to now see, oh, well, Tom actually is not asleep at midnight because he's watching the new show <laughs> that, that was released, right? So you can actually start to get into these deeper um, levels of analysis if, if you have access to verticals around a single person, but you know through, through multiple different offerings that you have. So... Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just I just kind of went off into a tangent there, but but it, it just it just made me think about that 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 you know just the access that you have you know with, with different different technologies these days. So you've obviously put your hand up and said you're talking about big businesses with a lot of data. So what do you do if you're a marketer and you don't work for Amazon, you don't work for Google, you can't leverage this kind of huge amount of insight, and you're a well, you're a CPG brand who who isn't mm-hmm. a Unilever? Like how how do you approach personalization when you? don't have a ton of first party data. Yeah, I think in that case, uh, it's kind of important to still focus on on research um, and be able to still make use of the data that you have access to, right? Something as simple and free as Google Analytics can tell you quite a lot about your consumers, what they're appreciating about your app or your website journey, um, and still be able to kind of personalize at at that level where you can, again, start to form data clusters. You can start to see your website uh, path, how do customers convert, right? And at least optimize at that second block that I uh, that I touched upon. So, you know, if block one is a lot of data and, and no organization, block two is clustered organization, which is achievable for anyone. Uh, and, and like I said, block three, which is the, the ultimate layer, is AI-driven anyway. So it's kind of irrelevant what size of business you are, because that's the area that everyone's trying to figure out. Um, so I, I would say at the very minimum, at least you can get to the clustered level and optimize experiences for those clusters. And just to kind of paint the picture a, a little bit better here, you know, if if you asked a group of people, let, let's say an audience of you know, 300, 400 people to, to come up with the coffee that they would like, you know, to drink, they would probably arrive at something of, uh, you know, like they, they themselves would score it at like 60, 60 to, to out of 100, right? But if you were able to create clusters out of that same group, that satisfaction level actually jumps to like a 70 to 75 out of 100, right? It's a very basic level of segmentation, but you have improved, you know, the, the coffee quite dramatically, uh, sorry, the satisfaction quite, quite dramatically um, from the consumer's lens. So that, that's what I would recommend is, you know, even if you can't get to the one-to-one personalization, you can still get to a segmentation level, uh, you know, personalization. So what does the future hold for personalization? I, mean, I, I remember, oh, I missed getting on 10 years ago, but every presentation at a conference would have Tom Cruise in Minority Report. You know, there's that scene where he walks <laughs> through a mall, shopping center, as we call them here. And there's a poster, I think it's even a Guinness poster, and it says, hey, 
and I can't remember his name, but he says, "Hey, Tom Cruise, uh, right. you fancy a nice car Guinness?" And like, you know, just think about the the uh, the castle or the GDPR level of compliance you'd have to go through to make oh. that ad work. You know, they would have to, you'd have to like sign into the shopping center and agree that their OS could attract your identity, and then you'd have to sign up on the Guinness site. Like that kind of personalization probably won't happen. Um, certainly not in an advertising context. So, what, where do you think yeah. it's going to go? I think I think we're. Um, uh, if you think of an equilibrium, right, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it always swings, you know, one way and the other. I mean, this analogy works for anything from politics to, to what have you. And, and I think marketers and, and, you know, companies in general had a lot of free reign. We're kind of seeing the pendulum swing the other way now, where it's, you know, uh, more, more legislation, more law, more restrictions, more autonomy. But the thing is, consumers are actually very receptive to personalization when it's done right. You know, it's just they don't appreciate when it goes wrong. And, and ultimately, I think there's going to be, you know, more desirability to, to, to you know, want that personalized information um, because really we've spoiled consumers, Right. <laughs> we've we've given them the instant gratification of having more optimized content, having more optimized creative, uh, having more optimized advertising, you know, being tailored to them. And, and, and I wonder, right, this is just more of a speculation here. I wonder if that's going to see that shift back where, you know, they do start to appreciate and, and start to, you know, want those um, moments of, of, of personalization and, and tailoring. But I, I, I do feel that the, the future is going to be, one-to-one communication. And we're kind of seeing this with the emergence of Web3, with, with, with the decentralization of, of, of businesses and relationships in general, where, you know, you know, if Adidas has an NFT tomorrow, um, you know, I have to purchase that NFT directly from Adidas and build that one-to-one relationship with the business. So that one-to-one, again, going back to ownership of data, I think that's going to become a key theme again, where, you know, you're going to own the data, you're going to own the relationship, you're going to have as much information as you can derive from that relationship to be able to provide a better service or solution to to that consumer. Well, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the podcast now. So if someone wanted to talk to you about personalization, your experience and your views, how would you like them to do that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, LinkedIn is probably the easiest, easiest way to to connect with me. Uh, you know, a very open, just kind of, you know, brief introduction and, you know, more than happy to connect and, and chat with chat with people there. And what makes a great outreach message to you? Honestly, I, I would just say, uh, you know, an intro, you know, what you're looking for uh, and how you feel uh, that that information would, would be beneficial. You know, I, I'm having, uh, uh, you know, I, I do like to be generous with everything that I've learned and, and, you know, all the experiences that I've had. So even if you're looking simply to learn and have a quick coffee chat, I'm also open to share uh, you know, what I can and hopefully inspire uh, the, the the next, you know, era of, of marketers. No, I think that is a lovely offer. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Tom. Hi, just before you go, I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time to write a review of the Shiny New Object Podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever it's called these days, or whichever podcast provider you use. We're an indie podcast, so it would go a long way for us if you could just share the word and give us a bit of a support on those channels. That would just be fantastic. If you haven't got time, that's also cool. And yeah, if you could tell your colleagues about the podcast and also, if possible, don't forget to subscribe. And I'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, if you'd like to speak on the podcast or be a guest or 
you think I'm asking the wrong questions, anything, I'd be super interested to hear what you think. So please email me at tom at automatedcreative.net. That's T-O-M at, uh, I'm not going to bother spelling it. Anyway, you'll work it out. Thanks so much.